I think that's what we relate to a lot in West Virginia. We are not diverse in the terms of ethnicity or race, but we can understand that feeling of invisibility, that our problems just don't matter to the rest of the world, that we are just kind of cast aside as backward hillbillies that goes back to that comment of we just don't deserve it, that we just kind of accepted this way of life. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Vernice Miller-Travis, Senior Advisor for Environmental Justice and Equitable Development at SKIO and host of our regular monthly series on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Today's podcast is an interview with Ms. Angie Rosser, Executive Director of the West Virginia Rivers Coalition. And Angie, welcome. And can you say a little bit more about who you are and what you do in West Virginia? Well, thanks, Bernice, for having me on uh, this episode today. I I am the Executive Director of the West Virginia Rivers Coalition. We're, we're the only statewide organization here in West Virginia focused on all things water. And that means people having access to enjoy our rivers and streams for all of its uses, whether it be swimming, recreation, fishing, or having a safe and secure drinking water supply, which has been a large focus of our advocacy and organizing work in in recent years. My background uh, was I, I grew up in Ohio and I discovered the natural beauty and the wonderful people of West Virginia. And I I said I got to West Virginia as soon as I could because I wanted to work on behalf of this state where I saw a population of people who were disempowered and struggling. And, you know, I wanted to be part of that struggle for, for justice in a place that I saw being exploited over the decades. I started my career in work on violence against women and children and then transitioned into this environmental work where it was astounding to me to see some of the parallels of what I knew to be an abusive relationship in a, in a household or intimate relationship and how I saw that playing out between the government and how um, they regulated or failed to regulate uh, pollution that was going and exploitation going on in West Virginia. So I saw a new form of violence in the in, and um, inequity in the form of environmental violence. And it's just been a journey of how to work in communities in authentic ways and to really put at the center of our work those who are most affected, most marginalized um, when looking at this, this work through a justice and equity lens. So Angie, I'm so glad that you you gave us that sort of full circle appreciation of how and why you do what you do. And I want to start with a conversation that you and I were part of a project that the West Virginia Rivers Coalition was doing to expand and diversify the circle of people that it worked with in West Virginia. And we were in a session talking about messaging. And this woman um, who you probably remember who she was um, said, well, you know, one of the main challenges we face is that people in West Virginia don't believe they're entitled to a safe and clean environment. And as you recall, it hit me so hard when she said that, because I've been in places where people feel that, that they have to make a choice between 
making a living. And in West Virginia, that's often about extractive industries or a safe and clean environment. And if that's what people are holding in their hearts and in their souls, how do you get them to work with you on a lot of the issues that West Virginia Rivers takes on? Can you say something about that sort of ethos about people not believing that they're entitled to a safe and clean environment? Yes, I, I do remember that statement. And there was a lot of gravity to that statement because it rings so true across communities in our state and how deeply ingrained that belief is and that false choice that we have to choose between environment and health versus jobs and, and economic opportunities. And it's almost just accepted as the trade-off. And when you're living in a state so reliant on extractive industries that, you know, it's just part of the fabric of life here that pollution and destruction occurs, disaster occurs, and it's just part of what we have to deal with and sacrifice. We talk about sacrificial zones, sacrifice zones that extractive industries uh, leave in their wake and um, that how difficult it is to overcome that mindset because along with just that general acceptance is also a feeling of helplessness and disempowerment. One of our biggest challenges in trying to mobilize communities to to lift their voice and to make a stand is that they feel that the powers that be are just insurmountable, that their voice and even their vote isn't going to change things. So we look for opportunities to be able to demonstrate that when, when communities mobilize effectively, there is a change and we just need those small victories, I think. And we had an extraordinary opportunity a few years ago in the midst of a, a massive drinking water crisis to do exactly just that. So Angie, share for our audience what that challenge was and then what the outcome was. Sure. Um, in 2014, we experienced in West Virginia the largest chemical drinking water contamination event in our nation's history. And it was a, a leaky chemical tank that spilled a, a chemical called MCHM. It's a coal cleaning chemical that little was known about. But what happened when it permeated the drinking water supply is it made people sick. One in three people experienced some kind of physical symptom from exposure to this chemical, um, from just coming into contact with it or drinking water. Lots of nausea, dizziness, diarrhea, skin rashes um, were, were very frequent. And it, it hit 300,000 people. So we're talking about our capital city of Charleston, the nine counties surrounding area, just a large, large scale event. It sh literally shut down every business in our capital city for days, shut down schools for weeks. So it was the epitome of an example of where failure to regulate, failure to protect our drinking water supplies um, had dire cost in terms of businesses, in terms of public health, and in terms of people's confidence in their government doing their job to protect us. So that, of course, that event and the number of people who were affected led to a very intense organizing opportunity where there was a lot of outrage and fear and anxiety and anger that we, we helped to channel 
into reform. This this event happened to ha- happen on the second day of our legislative session, and all of our lawmakers were directly affected. And because it was such a personal thing like um, drinking water, and we could see the, the ill effects of it, it really was a catalyst for change. And it brought people together who never would have said they were environmental advocates or experts in watershed protection. They just wanted to know that the water their kids were drinking was okay. And that there was a strong realization that we could not take for granted that our government or these companies were doing the right thing, that it's actually the people who need to be involved in the decisions that are made about the water and and holding our government accountable. So we were able to, with the force of that mobilization and the the citizens involved in that, see a, a bill passed in our legislature unanimously that made major strides in water protection, included mandated source water protection planning, which was kind of the next launching point of our organizing work and, and to expand the, the circle to, to new and underserved communities. And that's where we began to do some work together. And so I, I want to ask you, Angie, because I know this is a very important set of issues to you about expanding that circle. What were those challenges for you? And have those challenges been met in terms of expanding the circle of folks who come together around these issues in West Virginia, do you think? Yeah, I mean, the the challenge we face is always simply comes down to capacity. I mean, we're a very small nonprofit. We have four people on staff and we're statewide. There are drinking water contamination events happening on a weekly basis in this state and people are deprived of their drinking water. You know, it may affect six households, it may affect 600, it may affect 300,000. It's very different when you're dealing with those numbers. And the challenge is that those six families down in the holler, their right to drinking water is just as important as people in the capital city. (laughs) So that's part of our frustration and what we grapple with is we can't be everywhere. So where do we even start or how do we even model this? And when the source water protection planning um, opportunity came about and and to work with SKIO on it. It was a real chance to kind of take a deeper dive in one community. And we learned an incredible amount from that process. And I guess overarching all of the things we learned was just this realization that we could not continue to do this work without being absolutely intentional about expanding the circle and making sure that all voices were represented in this and that listening was such a key component of this and having that posture. I think before this experience, it was very important for us to be perceived as the experts in how to do watershed protection. I mean, that that was why we did what we did and we could Tell communities, you know, here's what you need to do. And that's your tagline. <laughs> right. But, you know, we were challenged on that. And it's almost like uh, it's flipped on its head that we need to hear from communities what's most important to them and what the greatest needs are and how we meet people where they're at and um, understand how to be a part of the community conversations already happening. And one thing we had to clearly accept is that, yes, clean water 
access to clean water is necessary for everyone, but it's one of many things <laughs> that people are concerned about and struggling with. So we couldn't just work in this silo of water advocacy. We also had to recognize interconnections between other pieces of attaining equity and justice, whether it be healthcare or education or discrimination and affordable wage, housing, food security. I mean, it's like all of these things are clearly connected and it's really changed our approach to the work. But it, if you'd like to go into specific examples of, of our pilot, I think there are some nuggets, some learnings to take out of that. So you were asking, Angie, if I wanted you to give some specific examples. And, and I think that would be helpful for folks to hear what kind of changes did you all make? What different things did you do? And then what were the results of some of those changes? And how do you feel about it now? Right. So the opportunity we had to do work in the community around drinking water safety was to facilitate public involvement in working with their water provider on a source water protection plan. They were afforded this opportunity through the law that we helped get passed in the wake of the drinking water crisis I mentioned. And we wanted to do what we could to make sure all members of the community, especially those that were most unrepresented and these kind of policy and decision making were in the room and their voices were being heard. So one thing we started from the beginning is involving these groups that we hadn't worked before with in the planning process. And one of the things SKU helped us with and formatting these community forums that we wanted to have is to make sure that these community groups had a platform for visibility, for not only talking about drinking water is something important to them, but also making connections with other issues. So they were not meetings where we were at the front of the room <laughs> quote unquote, educating communities on what they needed to know and what they needed to do. There was some of that, but it was mostly community partners um, having a role in the forums. So that from the beginning set a different tone and I guess level of engagement and involvement from over ultimately 70 groups, um, many, most of which we hadn't worked with before. So providing providing them that platform. And, and we we also had a small version of a focus group, you know, with the funding we had to do some message testing. And that that ended up to be very important that we were hearing from the communities about messages and images that would be most likely to reach and resonate it with these communities. So we were very intentional about the, the message we used. We did some translation, but, you know, one thing <laughs> it isn't just that easy. Like you can just translate outreach materials and then you're done. A Latino group said, well, if you're going to translate all this into Spanish, are you going to have a translator there at the meeting? It's like, oh, we didn't think about that. <laughs> so it's, it, you know, it never, you're never done with this. It's kind of one, maybe one advancement leads to just a bigger set of openings and opportunities for really being inclusive of those communities. But we found that it's more than just asking people to come to your meetings. It has to go both ways. And, and that was a real learning for us too. 
You know, we thought, oh, we'll put you on the agenda. We'll give you a place to come and tell us, provide us input. And then the response was often, well, okay, you're asking us to come to one more meeting, one more thing. We're already busy. When are you going to come to our meetings? <laughs> you know, when are you going to help us out? So it's like, whoa, that was that was a big thing for us to understand. And, you know, one challenge of this, Bernice, I, I know you can understand is that this is all about trust and building relationships. And that takes such time and such intention. And it's not a deliverable that is you can quantify in ways that funders, some funders will have a checklist. It's not a checklist kind of thing. We need a funder who will fund 100 coffee meetings. <laughs> it's that kind of thing that's hard to come by, but is the essence, is the essence of expanding the circle in, in a meaningful and authentic ways is having those face-to-face -face conversations and building those relationships and how as an organization, we make sure that we're building in time, time for that is something that, that we're constantly looking at moving forward. But I love that idea, Angie, and I have not heard anybody else say, if we could get people to fund like mass community engagement, a hundred coffee meetings where we're going and spanning out and trying to reach every pocket of our community. I've never heard anybody say that. So I'm just saying it might be something that you want to think about rolling into, uh, you know, an approach or a proposal. So Angie, I got so much out of working with you and meeting you and your colleagues in the West Virginia Rivers Coalition and the communities that you serve, you gave me the opportunity to visit Shepherdstown, West Virginia for the first time, and I fell in love with it and have been back many times. But thanks to you all, to West Virginia Rivers Coalition. And you, it was two-way learning. It wasn't just that we were bringing some technical expertise and capacity building to you, but we also learned a lot about the folks that you serve and the communities that you serve and how challenging it is. And I, I just have really, really enjoyed getting to know you and watching your leadership operate in the watershed community and the river community. So you and I have this opportunity coming up to present, co-present together at the Facing Race Conference um, hosted by the Center for Social Inclusion, which will be in Detroit in the fall. And we haven't exactly figured out what we're going to talk about yet. But what are some of the highlights, Angie, you think of working at the intersection of these issues and race and racial inclusion and diversity, equity, and inclusion, and racial justice, how do you find the path forward? And I think a lot of people are looking for that path right now. Right. Well, what I'm looking forward to about the Facing Race Conference is it's just not the water people or the environmental people who I tend to you know, find myself surrounded with. And that's what I think as a, a water, clean water movement, we have to break out of, that we have to understand this as the cross-sectionality of issues and struggles people and, and particularly communities of color are, are faced with and, and to, to learn from that. So I think that is the path forward, that it's not uh, it's not just an environmental movement. It's a larger justice movement. And we've had to do that in West Virginia because, you know, environmentalism is kind of a bad word around here. So, you know, we have to look at it from a public health issue or an economic justice issue. We're forced to do that and to join to join forces with other other movements, other um, activist organizations and, and supporting them toward a bigger common goal or vision for uh, inclusion, equity and justice. So 
That excites me about going to Detroit. You know, our water crisis happened about a year before the whole Flint crisis started to reveal itself <laughs> in a very public way. And, you know, I know that that community is still not seeing justice, still not able to use their water. And it's meaningful to me to be in a place like Detroit, Michigan, and to acknowledge that, you know, our brothers and sisters in Flint and all kinds of pockets of this country, which we pride ourselves on being the greatest, most powerful country in the world. But, you know, we know that there are communities still deprived of their right to clean water and other basic rights and somehow have to create this collective voice and unifying strategies to make the kind of transformation that's needed so that everybody has access to, to clean water. And it's not just a problem that's invisible or cast aside. And I think that's what we relate to a lot in West Virginia. We are not diverse in the terms of ethnicity or race, but we can understand that feeling of invisibility, that our problems just don't matter to the rest of the world, that we are just kind of cast aside as backward hillbillies that goes back to that comment of we just don't deserve it, that we've just kind of accepted this way of life. What I'm realizing in this work and as I think about how we take this on as a nation and expanding the circle and continuing the dialogue about the intersectionality of issues and geographies is that even from a place where we don't have maybe the racial diversity as other places, we, we do have that sense of feeling invisible and left out. And I think if communities that are very diverse in nature, rural, urban, black, white, poor, middle-class, I mean, can find those common experiences and somehow unify the, you know, our, our strategies for, I think, a vision that we find we share. I mean, that, that's how that change is going to happen. We can't do it alone in West Virginia. I don't think the people in Flint can do it alone. We, we just all need to lift each other up. And uh, that's why I'm looking forward to going to this national conference that's going to put me out of my comfort zone, right? And that, I mean, that's the other thing. This is a very personal challenge. It's very about me as an individual and how I'm pushing myself out of my own comfort zone, my own assumptions, and knowing that yeah, I don't have all these answers. I'm never going to be perfect on this, but I'm willing to take some risk and I'm willing to take some feedback from people who have different experiences, different perspectives than me. But in the end, we all deserve and want the same things in life. So we're on this together, Bernice. We are, Angie, and I just hope we can convince more and more people that we are on the same journey. And if you want to hear more of the brilliant Angie Rosser and the very entertaining Vernice Miller-Travis talk about these issues some more, um, we really do invite you to join us at the Facing Race Conference hosted by the Center for Social Inclusion. I think it's the first weekend in November in um, in Detroit. And Angie and I are going to plow through this and a whole lot of people are going to be talking about sort of where are we in this moment in our country and what do we need to do to get on the same page so that we can make progress on behalf of all communities going forward. And Angie, it has been such a privilege to get to know you in this work. 
and to continue to do it with you. And I, I feel so much better knowing that you're out there helping to lead this fight, Angie. I really do. Well, thanks, Bernice. I mean, connections and relationships like you and I have developed is what makes it all the more rich, really what it's all about. So look forward to seeing you soon. And if people want to learn more about the West Virginia Rivers Coalition, Angie, where would they go? We're at wvrivers.org on the web. We're also on Twitter at at rwvrivers and also find us on Facebook. Thank you so much, Angie. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.